You're listening to the Ancestral Elements Podcast. I'm your host, Travis Gray. Join me as we cover topics about nutrition, health, and lifestyle so you can have ancestral health in a modern world. Hi, and welcome back, everybody, to the Ancestral Elements Podcast, Episode 13, Nutrigenetics and Cellular Redox. And this is going to be kind of the last of the nerdy episodes on nutrigenetics. We will switch into kind of very practical use for nutrigenetics in upcoming episodes, but we have one more to kind of get through on the very uh, scientific kind of nerdy side. So bear with me. So in previous episodes, I alluded to cellular redox. And I said it was basically like the cell's ability to metabolize and get rid of waste products, which it is, but we need to take a deeper dive into it because it's not only a complicated process, it is a process that is vital to your cellular health and to your epigenetics. All right, so redox, it stands for reduction and oxidation. So we know what oxidation is. You leave an apple that is sliced out on the counter and it turns brown. That's due to oxidation. So it's an adding of oxygen to that molecular process or a loss of electrons. Reduction is the gain of electrons or the loss of oxygen. All right, so the easiest way to see this kind of in everyday life would be striking a match. That is a redox combustion reaction. So one is oxidizing while one is reducing. And in the human body, you're looking at cellular redox. So how well is the cell essentially taking in nutrients and then getting rid of waste products it doesn't need? Another way of saying that would be cellular respiration, basically. And then that allows the cell to do its job. So it divides and replicates in a healthy way. And it's important to remember that cells react to the environment that they're in. If you take an immature stem cell, for example, depending on the type of environment that you put that stem cell in, it'll grow into that particular cell. Meaning that you could take the same stem cells, you could put one in a petri dish in an environment that grows bone, and one in a petri dish with an environment that grows muscle, and one would turn into bone, and one would turn into muscle. Does that make sense? You have the same stem cells, but yet they grow into something completely different. They grow into another tissue depending on the environment that they're in. And all of this has to do with epigenetics and the internal and external environments of the body. So if you're in an environment that is unbalanced, whether that's inside your body or you're outside of your body, meaning you're in an unhealthy environment externally with a lot of stress or chemical pollutants, whatever, right? Then those cells are going to adapt to that environment, meaning when they replicate and when they turn over due to this metabolism and redox, they're going to take on that state of environment. And really, the external environment always ends up internal in the body eventually, right? You have all those receptors taking in information from your environment and plugging that into your body through all the metabolic processes every day of your life. Or another way of saying that is your body reflects its environment. It gets really interesting when you start talking about illness. So I want to talk about fever and what that does at a cellular and mitochondrial level inside your body. I mean, we've all had a fever, right? It's a natural process that 
happens. It's an evolutionary process and an important one. And in this day and age, most of the time we focus on reducing fever when we get a fever, right? That's If you go to the doctor, that's exactly what the doctor will do. They will give you medication to break or reduce a fever, which it's starting to be questioned a little bit because there's a reason why your body induces a fever automatically when you fall sick. It's because it not only kind of boosts metabolism, cellular metabolism and turnover, it also turns over the mitochondria and enhances your immune system. Your That high temperature in the cells in your body starts to signal immune system factors to come in and kind of boost all that. And so if you reduce a fever, a lot of times you'll get a little bit more of a limited immune response, depending on the sickness. There was a nice study done. The uh, study title was The Fever Paradox, and it talked about how they took 57 kids with chickenpox, and they let the fever run the course. And then they had 53 kids that they gave fever-reducing drugs to. And what they found was that the kids that didn't get fever-reducing drugs for their chickenpox actually recovered faster. They had a faster recovery time. And what they found was that people that have fever in general, about 38 degrees Celsius to 40 degrees Celsius, which is about 100 to 104 Fahrenheit. When you're in a state like that, it ramps up your immune response. But what that heat does on a cellular level is that it also slows viruses' ability to multiply, meaning that it degrades the viruses due to heat, which is very significant, especially right now if you're catching my drift. And remember the mitochondria, those cellular engines that drive energy in your body? We talked about how they're super adaptable and super responsive to changes in an internal environment and changes in an external environment, meaning the energy that you're taking in from food affects them drastically and temperature affects them drastically. It signals changes in the mitochondria either from an internal heat source or an external heat source, and also light drastically affects them. I think what a lot of people fail to realize in the current medical system is that the fever isn't a sickness. It's not the disease. It's just a symptom of what's going on in the body and one that is tightly regulated and controlled and one of evolutionary value. There's a reason why we still get fevers. It's because it ramps up our body's ability to recycle damaged cells way more efficiently than we would if we didn't induce a fever. That's why a lot of naturopaths and functional medicine doctors tell you if you're feeling sick, induce a fever. You don't necessarily get that recommendation from a regular MD. Maybe some, but not most. Again, obviously fevers can become dangerous, and you don't want to have super high fevers because then you'll start leaching different proteins into your, into your bloodstream, and it can start shutting down organs. I mean, that's how you die from a fever. So it needs to be you know, if you're going to really spike a fever, can't be prolonged. I personally would reduce fever if I had one by getting in an ice bath rather than with medication. 
it's a little bit more of a natural way to do it and honestly a little bit more of an effective way. Using some ice packs or getting into a cold shower ice bath is a better way to get your body to deal with that overheating because you're getting some cold thermogenesis, which we talked about that last episode. So you're getting uh, some benefits from that rather than using medication that isn't going to provide you any benefit except breaking a fever. But you can easily break it with an ice bath or a really cold shower. So something to keep in mind if you ever are running a really high fever and you need to break it. And you'll know. I mean, you'll be absolutely miserable. I mean, you can start to even become delirious. So, you know, if something like that starts to happen, you'll know it's time to reduce it. I mean, and there's a lot of ancestral wisdom around the use of heat or healing illness. Hippocrates himself said that if all else fails with curing sickness, use heat. And if that doesn't work, then you're incurable, which, I mean, take that with a grain of salt, right? That was a long time ago, but there's something to that. You look at ancient traditions like those of First Nations people in North America, and you're dealing with sweat lodges. The act of getting your body into extreme heat, remember, creates heat shock proteins, heat shock factors that help assist the folding of proteins, right? So it helps regulate that whole epigenetic landscape, but it also helps you detox through the use of sweat. So there's three main ways to detox. You detox through your stool, through your pee, and then through your sweat. So when you're talking about cellular respiration and how that cell is getting rid of unwanted byproducts, waste, then it diffuses those waste products out into your body. And then you need to get that stuff out because otherwise it's going to pile up in the organs, usually in the liver or the kidneys or the spleen, occasionally the appendix. So it's important to be able to get that stuff literally out of your body. And you do that through sweating, urine, or stool. Now, if your cells don't have the ability to get rid of those waste products efficiently and effectively, then things start to slow down on a cellular level. They get backed up, just like your intestines would get backed up if you're not having bowel movements regularly. It's no different. It's just on a small scale. So by getting your body into extreme heat or extreme cold, it helps regulate that cellular detoxification that helps kind of get rid of all those waste products, which is a huge, huge aspect because, again, you can pump in the best nutrition ever. But unless you're getting rid of those end metabolites and that those end products for cellular respiration, you're not going to be healthy. And honestly, if I had one tool to use for the rest of my life, it would probably be a sauna. It's that important, especially if you're living in cold climates in the wintertime. You'll want that contrast. It's going to keep you healthy. It's going to keep your body regulated. And those of you that have done hot and cold contrast will know what I'm talking about. Your body feels almost like it's cleaned out internally, like someone kind of scrubbed things out. And it does that because it literally cleans up the cells. It kind of cleans up those damaged or dying cells quicker. It ramps up all that metabolism. And so it's a very, very useful tool and one that we don't do that regularly. But if you've ever done it, you'll know that you get a pretty amazing feeling from extreme hot and extreme cold and kind of going back and forth for 
you know, hours or whatever it may be. If you've ever spent time at a, you know, hydrotherapy spa or something like that, I mean, you'll know how good that feels. And from an ancestral perspective, when we're talking about heat, we're talking about fire or heat from the sun. Either way, it's infrared heat. I mean, again, fire is just captured sunlight that gets released from the wood, right? So either way, the light, again, the component, that light component of heat is very important on a cellular level as well. And on a mitochondria level, it increases your energy output for the cells, which keeps the immune system regulated. Because if you don't have enough cellular energy, then the immune system gets degraded and then things start to invade the body that otherwise wouldn't affect you. Which can bring me to another point about allergies or, you know, a lot of food sensitivities. When you look at people with a lot of food sensitivities, typically it means that their redox pathways are very poor, meaning that detoxification on a cellular level is really bad. Because everything is triggering an immune response. Are you with me on that? Your body should be able to deal with some type of load, whether it's from food or bacteria or viruses. That's what having robust health is. Your body's able to deal with that stuff and have it not negatively affect you. And if you're getting major reactions from food, then a lot of times you've got some metabolic unhealth going on. You can literally become allergic to anything under the sun, including the sun itself. People literally have sun allergies. Are you with me? That is not good. That The sun is one of the most healing things that there is on this planet. It's the reason for life on this planet. And be allergic to it, that means some serious unhealth. Remember that food sensitivities or allergies are the result of multi-system activity in the body. Take celiac disease, for example. Celiac disease, it affects barely 1% of the population. Pretty rare, but what it actually, people think it has to do with, you know, inability to deal with gluten, which is mildly true, but it's a protein issue. Your body isn't able to utilize the proteins effectively. Gluten is a protein, which I don't think a lot of people really know. There's two main proteins that make up the gluten molecule that gets shuttled into your body. It's gluten and gliadin. Those two proteins together if your body can't utilize them, then it will cause irritation of the gut lining, which will cause diarrhea and other bloating, symptomatic kind of inflammation, right? So then you get inflammation and you start releasing cytokines and then you can get gut permeability and then st things start leaching into the abdomen and other nutrients start to become less bioavailable because you can't break that stuff down because you have thinning walls of the gut and intestine, right? So it starts this cascade effect. But really what celiac disease is, it's an epigenetic issue more than it is even a genetic issue. Because celiac disease, I don't want to say it can be reversed, but it can. you can have those proteins start to not be as detrimental to your system if you're actually metabolically healthy. I think really what we will come to see in the near future is that a lot of times celiac boils down to a microbiome issue, that you don't have enough beneficial bacteria and the correct bacteria to break 
that stuff down in the small intestine because that's where it becomes an issue is really in the small intestine. There is a treatment that Northwest Medicine is doing with celiac disease. And what they're doing is they're encapsulating gluten proteins in nanoparticles and they are putting them in celiac patients. And what it's doing is it's triggering a tiny allergic reaction, but not big enough to cause any type of real discomfort. But the immune system starts to regulate that process. It starts to clear up celiac disease. Interesting treatment. They do that with peanut allergies as well. Tiny microdoses of peanut butter over time, you start to build up a tolerance. And if that's not epigenetics, I don't know what is, right? So with food sensitivities and allergies, you can build up a tolerance to where your body can deal with those things if it's approached very slowly in very microdosed amounts. Your body will learn how to deal with those. Again, showing how adaptable your epigenome is and your cellular mechanisms are. The fact that you can encapsulate gluten and gliadin proteins in nanoparticles and start to relieve celiac in celiac patients ultimately proves that there is no hard set genetic component to it, right? Because that gene expression can be changed if it's done slowly over time. So this idea of really hard set genetic allergies, I have a hard time believing fully. Because just like a peanut allergy, yeah, you'll have some predisposition passed down generationally, but it's passed down through epigenetics. And as we've talked about, the epigenetics are extremely flexible, meaning you can change them if you choose to change them. So even with allergies and food sensitivities, if you start to ramp up that mitochondrial health, ramp up that cellular energy ramp up those detoxification pathways that the cells need to get rid of waste products, your food sensitivities start to be decreased. It may not fix everything because it's a very complicated process, again, involving many different systems of the body. I mean, you start to involve the liver and the pancreas and the stomach, right? Gallbladder, you know, things get very complicated very quickly. And then it starts hormonal cascades, starts histamine responses and things like that. And there's a lot going on. But if you're truly healthy down to a cellular level and the cells are optimally functioning more than they are not, you don't have as many sensitivities. Typically, when you see somebody with, that is just riddled with food allergies and food sensitivities, they're pretty unhealthy. It's hard to claim that people with major food sensitivities are super healthy, right? There's, that's an indicator. There's something more going on. There's something not quite right in the biology. It could be in the cells. It could be in different organs. It could be intestinally in the GI tract or all of the above, right? It's not all the same and it depends on the person, but a truly healthy person usually doesn't have major food sensitivities. They're not flagging an immune response with nutrients that they're taking into their body. I really wish that they would classify food sensitivities as something like food-related cellular redox deficiency because something is going on inside the cells where it can't handle proteins at their receptor sites. It's an amino acid and protein issue. Remember, proteins are built from amino acids and they get broken back down into an 
amino acids when they metabolize. Does that make sense? So that it's this building and breaking down of amino acids, and depending on how the proteins fold and how they're activated, because an activation, a signaling molecule, will activate a protein to change its folding, depending on the signal that's coming in. So this all goes back to proteins and amino acid breakdown and a simulation of proteins and amino acids. If your body is having a hard time doing that, it starts with the cells. It starts with the mitochondria and cellular energy. Because if that's lacking, if the mitochondria, if you have dysfunction, then that's going to cause a whole cascade of things. I mean, it's going to be very detrimental to your health. And over time, you're going to develop more and more sensitivities as a result. More and more dysfunction starts to pop up. So this idea of cellular redox and mitochondria become extremely important when you're looking at your overall health. And so let's jump into some ways on how to improve that even more. So personally, and this is just my opinion, I would start with the gut, with your microbiome. And again, just my opinion, I think the easiest way to recolonize the gut with beneficial bacteria and elemental health is through spring water. Spring water that isn't processed. You need to make sure it's clean and safe through a water test, but drinking raw unprocessed water is probably the easiest way to kind of recolonize the gut with bacteria. Beyond that, you're looking at things like getting infrared light because your mitochondria is profoundly affected through light. You're looking at getting your body into extreme cold, extreme heat. You're looking at really well-balanced, proper nutrition that fits your nutrigenetics at that given time. And that may have to shift over time as things start to regulate out a little bit. Getting bacteria through soils and right, getting your hands into some dirt, getting your body dirty, your skin dirty, all of that affects your microbiome and your overall health. You know, in this day and age, we're very used to having extreme sterile environments. Everything is really, really sterile, and it plays a pretty profound effect on the microbiome and all the other systems at large. And if you've on any type of antibiotic or antiviral, it's even more important to kind of recolonize and reconstitute the gut. If you think about our ancestors, they literally had their hands in animals. They had blood on their hands, quite literally. Think about all the bacteria and all the viruses and everything else that's in blood of other animals, mammals or not, right? We don't really do that anymore. It's pretty rare unless we're slaughtering or hunting our own animals, but the majority of the population doesn't do that. And there's something to be said for that as well. Constantly feeding the immune system and keeping it active, keeping it robust. It's like any other system of the body it needs to be activated a, a little bit. It can't be overactivated all the time. But it needs to have activity in there to know how to regulate and keep things balanced. Otherwise, it's just going to lay dormant and then it's going to spike hugely and lay dormant and spike hugely. You don't want that. You want subtleties and fluctuation, just like anything else. That's essentially how all your biological systems work. They need a little bit of constant input to keep things balanced. You don't want huge, huge spikes and then crashes. Right? Just like your blood sugar and glucose levels in your body, you don't want huge spikes because you're going to get huge crashes. But if you keep things relatively stable, meaning a little bit being fed in to a biological system, that's when things start to be able to utilize that. Just like getting rid of a peanut allergy, a tiny little bit of stimuli 
a teeny, teeny little taste to the tip of the tongue of peanut butter when you're allergic to barely induce an allergic response. If you do that enough over time, you can start to build up. It may not be that you're eating, you know, 15 peanut butter sandwiches a day and don't get a reaction, but imagine if you were literally deathly allergic to peanut butter. Some people, even touching peanut butter, can send them into anaphylaxis. Imagine if you could handle peanut butter and be safe, right? That in itself is a win. So there's really, your body can deal with stimuli if it's given the proper dosage and the amount of time frame. And it does that through the cells. It does that through mitochondria production. And it does that through cellular memory. Remember, your cells carry memory. So if you want to fix food sensitivities or allergies, then your cells need to build that memory. If you've got epigenetic memory of food sensitivities, of course your cells are going to remember that. If that's multiple generations in, you're going to have to teach them another way. You're going to have to reprogram them. We're talking about cellular reprogramming, essentially, and that can definitely be done. And a great example is through food sensitivities, because that's been shown to have a profound effect. And I bet if you do follow-up studies that the people with food sensitivities that have gradually built up resistance to those, I bet their kids are far less allergic than their parents started out to be. So again, this starts to build. That's how it is in rodent models. Human trials, there's not a ton of data on it, but things do look promising in this area of food sensitivity research and prevention. And another good example is mycotoxins in coffee. There became a really big fad pushed by Bulletproof Coffee mainly. That was the first major company to really be concerned with mycotoxins in coffee and green coffee beans. It's interesting because I bet if you were to really look at that, that becomes a cellular redox issue more than anything. Because if your body can't deal with a little bit of mycotoxins here and there, if it can't get rid of that properly and effectively, you've got some mitochondrial dysfunction. And I think that's where a lot of people are coming from with, especially in the kind of biohacking world, a lot of those people are dealing with a lot of mitochondrial dysfunction and a lot of cellular redox issues. So they need all this gear and all this ultra clean stuff to kind of revamp their body. And not to say that it doesn't work and it isn't beneficial because it absolutely can be. But to really build in resilience is something different. To ultimately build in a lot of cellular resilience, you can do it naturally. You don't need a bunch of machinery or medications or technology to do it. Our ancestors had it in spades. It's not something we really do much anymore. Another interesting thing you see with people that have a lot of food sensitivities or allergies is that their skin typically is really unhealthy. Remember, your skin is the largest organ in your body. It's an organ, just like your liver is an organ, your gallbladder is an organ, right? I think it's easy to forget that it's such a big organ. Every organ has things that go into it and that go out of it. Your skin is no different. So it can take things in and it can release things out. So the interesting thing about the skin, it's either your final exit point for nutrients and toxins, or it's your first defense and entry point for nutrients and toxins. Typically, if you have really unhealthy skin and you're dealing with some type of skin 
dysfunction, then a lot of times you're dealing with an internal environment issue, whether it's a gut issue or mitochondria issue or nutrient issue. Your nutrients are the last, I mean, your skin is the last organ to get nutrients. Does that make sense? Because it has to filter its way all the way from inside your body up to the skin. So if, if you have really unhealthy skin, it means you have pretty poor nutrient distribution and pretty poor cellular redox because things are getting lost along the way as it makes its way to the surface through the dermal layer and through the capillary bed. That being said, if you are taking in toxins or chemicals through the skin and you're getting skin issues, that's different. Typically, I mean, you'll see that in the internal tissues eventually, but a lot of times the skin will kind of contain those chemicals or toxins. Not always. Um, eventually, you'll see it kind of through the tissues or in the blood, but it is a pretty good defense system. But if you're not dealing with, you know, some type of pesticides or chemicals that you're having to interact with on a daily basis and you have major skin issues, you've got some nutrient deficiency somewhere or some some type of cellular deficiencies. If you've ever seen anybody with tinea versicolor, which if you don't know what that is, Google image that. It's uh, pretty interesting. It's a fungal infection that ends up in the skin where it causes kind of white blotches. Oh, it almost looks like bleached areas in the skin. And a healthy redox pathway, a healthy cellular redox would deal with that, would have the ability to deal with that kind of small fungal infection. The conventional treatment is through topical lotions and things like that. Another way is through infrared light and UV light because it starts to break that bacteria and fungal infections down. Because sometimes with fungal infections, you get kind of co-infections that pop up because the immune system is weakened. And so occasionally it'll flip into some bacterial overgrowth and things like that as well. And so again, light becomes a big part of that. And you can clear it up very drastically. You could look up red light treatment with tinea versicolor, and it's pretty dramatic, the change that people can go through, you know, and that's an easy enough thing to do. So the fact that our organs, and not only the function of them, but the appearance of them and the capacity to detoxify become so inhibited, that's really what starts to become a big issue, a really big issue. Again, nutrients in, byproducts out. Nutrients in, byproducts out. That's how you want things to function, and it's got to function smoothly. Otherwise, it's going to cause a major, major cascade of events that throws the body into huge unbalance. And the sooner you can stave that cascade effect off, if you can cut it off, the better it's going to be because the, you don't allow it to get worse and worse. These things compound on each other. Deficiencies compound on each other. A lot of times, food sensitivities compound on each other. If you look at links of avocado allergies, it's also linked to hay fever. Interesting, right? People that get hay fever have avocado allergies. These processes in the body are very complex, but ultimately it comes down to an overactivation of an immune response, which really is either an energy output issue in the cell or a detoxification issue in the cell or some type of nutrient breakdown issue that's causing an imbalance. That's why people can eat a food for years and years and years and all of a sudden one day they become allergic to it just like that. It happens all the time with people. The food hasn't changed but their cells have changed. Something's gone on somewhere in along in that process. Are you following me on this? 
People can literally wake up and they can become allergic to a food, even though they've eaten it a thousand times over. Does that not strike kind of an odd tone in the fact that you can change those allergic reactions due to habitual eating of those components in the food that are making an allergic reaction is even stranger, right? It's like the cure is the same poison that is causing an allergic reaction. Does that make a lot of sense? Or is it the fact that your body on a cellular level is has some type of hindrance that needs to be dealt with? And there's many different ways to deal with it. Again, that's why I don't put a lot of faith in a ton of food sensitivity stuff, because I think there's way more going on than I think most people realize. I think it, you're dealing with essentially every system in the body when you're dealing with some type of food sensitivity, and every system therefore needs to be addressed. Your body doesn't get anything wrong. It only responds to internal and external stimuli, and it only responds to that according to a biological process. The fever isn't the sickness. It's a symptom of a larger issue that's going on in the body. Food is no different. An allergy is a symptom of something larger going on in the body down to the cellular level. And once again, as we get more and more disconnected as a community from the things that keep our cells detoxing, keeping high energy, we're going to have to develop more and more syndromes. Anytime you see syndrome tacked on to the end of a diagnosis, it means that it's a multi-system complex thing that they don't really know a lot about, and most of the time there's no cure for it. <laughs> we're going to see more of those. There's new syndromes being invented every day because we have more and more cellular unhealth. So thank you for listening to another episode of the Ancestral Elements Podcast. I will be talking to you guys this next week. Thank you for listening to the Ancestral Elements Podcast. If you like what you're hearing, please subscribe on iTunes or Spotify and leave me a rating and review. This will help people find the podcast so we can grow the audience. Thank you so much for listening. And if you want to talk to me personally, go to ancestralelements.com slash community to get access to the forum. We go through each episode every week and talk about these concepts and ideas in greater detail. And you can connect with other listeners. Thank you.